morning, everyone. It's great to, great to be here. Um, for um, many of you I know, um, my name is Mark. I'm here with my wife, Alicia. We were members of this church until quite recently. There's a few people I don't recognize here, which is great. It means there's, there's more people coming along, uh, which, which is fantastic. So we were members here until about Christmas last year. And obviously a lot's changed since then. There's been a, a church plant that's gone out to Woodcroft, which seems to be, seems to be going quite well. It's been a, a bit of a, a bittersweet time. I can imagine uh, in the, the interim period there, it's been a bit of a, a time of rebuilding. I can imagine here at Brighton has um, got used to the fact that people have left. Maybe some of the, the rosters have been a bit more stretched than usual. Um, people that we're, we're friends with who aren't here anymore. A um, few more empty chairs. The room just has a bit of a different feel to it. And so there is a bit of, a bit of change, a bit of rebuilding uh, that, we're, that we're going through here. And you know, perhaps that's, discouraging and tiring at times, but hopefully there's a bit of excitement uh, that goes with it as well, the chance to, to start something fresh uh, together. But the book of Haggai that we've just read speaks to people who are in the midst of a major, major rebuilding project. Uh, people who were discouraged, uh, they were fearful, and really they were overwhelmed with the situations that they were facing at that time. And the message of Haggai is that God is with them that he promises them great blessings, uh, but also that he expects a lot from them as well. It's a a challenging but also an encouraging message, the book of Haggai. Uh, So to put Haggai in its its context, it's not a book I've been hugely familiar with before tackling it, so I'm I'm learning just as much as all of you in this. Um, If we're thinking about sort of the the flow of the the Old Testament in the Bible, we've got Israel as God's chosen people who he's, he's freed out of slavery from Egypt. They've sort of gone a bit up and down in their relationship with him. Uh, They've had a a king chosen. The kingdom has split soon after that. And then you've got two two kingdoms of Israel, the the southern kingdom, put southern down here when I'm talking about it, the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom. Uh, The northern kingdom's just gone from bad to worse and been been sent into exile. The southern kingdom's sort of been a bit up and down, but eventually it's gone pretty bad as well. And it's uh, the people of that southern kingdom have been sent into exile in Babylon. So that happened around, sort of around 600 BC. They were, they were sent into exile there. And then Babylon get defeated by Persia. They get taken over by Persia. And the so people of Israel get, get sent back to the southern kingdom. There's, there's a whole group of them who are sent back to their land again. Uh, that happens around 538 BC. And we, we read a bit in the book of Ezra, actually, which is another, another book that's set around this time, uh, that they go back to, to Jerusalem and they, they try to rebuild the city and to rebuild the temple. And they have a whole lot of opposition from the, the surrounding nations around there. The nations really try and put a stop to them rebuilding the temple. And so there's a period of almost 20 years where the temple is just lying there in, in ruins uh, from the destruction that it's had. And it's not until the second year of Darius, King Darius of Persia, which is where we pick up, here in Haggai, that the rebuilding starts again. Uh, now, this was a time of great economic hardship, so there was, was a bit of a tough time all around. Quite a lot of social instability as well, so there were a lot of uprisings from nations around the place. The, the Persians were going around trying to, to keep everyone in check. And we can see in this passage that it was also a time of um, great agricultural failure as well. We see that um, Israel's crops aren't doing too well in this period. So there's a lot going on. This, this is a, a people that have got a lot uh, going on in their situation. 
And the book of Haggai that we've just read is four messages from God that take place over, over about a four-month period, uh, words that, that God speaks to the people through Haggai. And the first message, uh, which is pretty much all of chapter one there, is for them to get their priorities right, to get their priorities right. Um, so what Haggai does here is he, he points out to the people the situation that they find themselves in. So we see in, in verse 6 there, he's telling them, you've planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. It's quite similar to the Adelaide Hills, I can tell you from, from my experience. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. So there's, there's a real um, dissatisfaction and futility uh, to the life that they're living. And God tells them that the reason for this is that their priorities are wrong uh, because they haven't rebuilt God's house, the temple. It's a bit like what Stephen was showing us with his video games before. They, they've got something that they're supposed to be doing, but instead they're, they're looking at other things. Um, so we can see that the people are, are saying here in, in verse 4, um, sorry, in verse 2, the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. That's the, the excuse that they're putting out there for not rebuilding the temple. And you can kind of, you can kind of empathize with them a bit, can't they? Like you're, you're looking at the things that are going on in these, this chapter. They're getting bad harvests. They're probably trying to rebuild the whole rest of the city. Uh, they're dealing with the constant threat of war around them. There's probably a lot of reasons you can think that they might not feel that they've got the resources to build this temple. They've got a lot of other distractions going on. Um, but look at the rebuke that Haggai gives them. We see in verse 9 there, towards the end of verse 9, he says, My house remains a ruin while each of you is busy with your own house. And he says a similar thing there in verse 4. You know, is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your, your panelled houses, so your, your nice luxury houses, while this house of mine is left in a ruin? And so the, the issue here is that they're looking after their own houses. They're, they're making sure their own houses are in really good order, but they're paying no attention to God's house. God's house is lying there ruined. Um, and so the real issue here is, is what we see in verse 8, uh, where, where God says that the reason for this is so that I may take pleasure in it and be honoured. So it's God's pleasure and honour. That's, that's the big issue here. That's is what they need to be seeking as they go about life. And in fact, in verses 9 to 11 there, we see that God makes a, a direct distinction between the two. He, he says that your lives are, are frustratingly unfulfilling. You're having all these things going wrong because you've neglected my pleasure and my honor. So there's a, there's a direct cause and effect that's going on here. Right, so why is the temple so important? That's, that's a big question. Why is, why is the temple so important? Well, it's because it's the focal point of God's presence among his people. Uh, so if we, if we go back a few hundred years in time when, when Israel were coming out of Egypt and wandering through the deserts, um, God told them to build a tabernacle, which was sort of like a, a, an object that was meant to be the focal point of God's presence among his people as they were, they were traveling through the desert. Uh, they had this tabernacle that they were, they were bringing with them to be able to be the focal point of God's presence with them. And then when they're, they're settled in the land, um, King Solomon 
organizes the building of a temple. And the temple is a place where God's presence dwells with his people. And then, of course, a few years down the track, we see that Israel gets um, defeated in battle. The Babylonians come along and they destroy the temple. Uh, But even before they destroy the temple, we have this really devastating scene uh, that plays out in the book of Ezekiel, where there's this vision of the glory of God leaving the temple. So it's a really devastating picture of God's presence departing from his people. Um, But the book of Ezekiel ends with a vision of a new temple being built and God's presence, God's glory coming back with his people, God's people being restored and God's people being blessed. So clearly the temple is tied up in God's presence with his people and God's blessing with his people. And a lot of these trials that they're going through, the, the exile that they've had, the, the bad agricultural crops that they're having, what, um, what we're supposed to see here is that these are actually consistent with the covenant curses that, that we've seen years earlier in the Old Testament. So um, the book of Deuteronomy, as Israel are about to enter into the promised land, we see in chapter 28 of Deuteronomy, there's this, there's this speech that Moses gives where he talks about the blessings and the curses of God's covenant people. And so he's really saying, if you obey God, if you honor the relationship that God wants to have, these are all the blessings that you're going to have. But then on the other hand, if you disobey, these are all the curses that you can expect to happen. And as we read through the list of curses, the, the two really prominent things in there are being defeated by your enemies and having bad crops, so not having enough food, not having enough rain. And see, these are the two big things that have just happened, aren't they? So that the people have just been in exile for 60 or 70 odd years, and they've, they've just come out of that as a big covenant curse. And now they're back in the land, and they're getting bad rainfall, bad crops. So they're meant to be seeing that actually this is consistent with what God said would happen uh, if you were disobedient to him. And the people, to their credit, they take this on board, and we see there in uh, verse 12, they obey the voice of the Lord their God, and they begin rebuilding the temple. So the lesson to learn here is that God's priorities need to be our priorities. And the question to ask as we're, we're looking at each part of our life is, whose kingdom am I building here? Is it God's pleasure and God's honor? that I'm working for, or is it my own that I'm working for? That's a challenging question. It really causes us to ask, where is, where is my time, my money, and my energy? Where, where are these things being poured into? Am I giving my best for God's pleasure and honor, or, or am I doing it for my own? And there's lots of reasons not to, aren't there? I think we can, we can look at a a narrative like this, we can look at all the things that the people of Israel were dealing with and we can think, actually, no, there's a lot of perfectly good reasons to, to think it, it is reasonable for them to not be building the temple. And we think about our own lives and, and realize it is hard to give our pleasure and honor to God a lot of the time. I was, um, I was on an airplane the other day. I was, my boss at my new church and I were, were flying out to a conference and you know that moment when you're sitting in an aeroplane and there's a spare seat next to you and the last few passengers are getting on, you're thinking, oh, I'd love to have a spare seat next to me. This would be really, really nice. And then the last passenger gets on, you think, I bet he's going to sit next to me. And sure enough, he comes down and sits next to me and then you think, oh, I bet he wants to talk to me. 
as well. And sure enough, he starts having a conversation and I'm just not in the mood for it at all. I just want to be quiet to myself and read my book. And he wants to show me pictures of his car gearbox he's fitted out and all, all, these, all these things that I'm not interested in. And I'm trying to sort of shut down the conversation. And then, and then I thought to myself, Mark, you're on the way to a conference, which is all about reaching people in Australia with the gospel. And you're wanting to turn down this opportunity to actually talk to someone and have the chance to tell them about Jesus and realize that, yeah, it's actually so easy to, to seek my own pleasure and to, to seek my own, my own things in life. Um, I think prayer is a big one like that as well. I think so often with prayer, I can think, I've got so much on for the day. You know, I've got, I've got way too many things on and, and prayer can just seem like it's not a significant thing to do. You know, you can think, ah, oh, I'd love to have time to pray, but I just, I just don't. But then actually understanding that prayer is the most important thing that we can do. It's carving out that precious time uh, that we have and giving it over to God. Uh, So, yeah, the challenge here is to make sure that God's pleasure and God's honor are being prioritized in our lives. Um, But that can be difficult at times, um, which brings us to the second message, which is in the first part of chapter two there, uh, which is God telling his people that he is with them. God is with us. And now this would have been quite a time of discouragement for the people. There was a lot of hard work they were doing. This was during the festival month as well. So they were having all their festivals while constantly being reminded that they didn't have a proper temple. Uh, Verse 3, Haggai even tells them, look, how does this temple look to you now? Does it seem to you like nothing? Like he's reminding them that there was once this great temple here and now there's just a pile of rubble. And so these were people who were overwhelmed by circumstances and by expectations, overwhelmed by the need to have this temple, overwhelmed by their enemies who are causing issues around them. And so what does God tell them? He tells them in verses four and five, be strong and work for I am with you. Do not fear, my spirit remains among you. And then he makes some pretty bold promises about what he's going to do there from verse six onwards. Uh, He says, in a little while, Um, I will shake the heavens and the earth. I'll shake all the nations. What is desired by the nations will come. I will fill this house, this temple, with my glory. And the presence of this house will be greater than the glory of the former house. That's a massive promise for him to give. And what we don't see in Haggai, but what we read in the book of Ezra, is actually what happens afterwards, uh, which is that the Jews begin work on the temple. They begin rebuilding the temple. And the king of Persia, they they have some opposition from their enemies again. Then the king of Persia actually declares that um, the the temple rebuilding is going to be paid for um, out of the royal treasury. And so he sends money and he sends treasure and he he even sends the old treasures that were taken out of the temple uh, to give back to them. And so the whole process is funded uh, by other countries. And so literally what's happening here is the nations have been shaken and the treasures of the nations or the, the things that the nations treasure are being brought to the temple uh, to provide for this rebuilding. And so the house is filled with great glory again. However, there, was, there wasn't even greater glory that was to come to this temple. And we fast forward a, a few hundred years and get to, to John's gospel and we see Jesus himself coming to the temple and, and Jesus declaring that he himself Um, is the fulfillment of this temple. Because what was the temple? The temple was God's presence with his people. And that's who Jesus came as, God's presence among his people. 
And of course, the temple itself would then be destroyed a few years later. So about 70 AD, the Romans came and destroyed the temple. Um, by the time that happened, Jesus had died. Uh, he'd been resurrected. He'd, been, he'd ascended back to heaven. And he'd sent his Holy Spirit to be God's presence among his people. And so we, we see that clearly in the book of 1 Corinthians, where we're told that the church together is God's temple. It's where God dwells by his spirit. And not just the church as a whole, but each one of us individually is a temple of God, where God dwells by his spirit. And so we don't have to go to a, a particular building to be able to be present with God. We don't have to come to the, the Marymount College gym or, or any other special building like that. God is present among us as his people and as individual people who follow him. What a, what a great privilege to have God present with us. And so if we've trusted in Jesus, God is present with us. We have this, this great assurance of his presence. Uh, so the third and fourth message then come on the same day. And these are, are promises of blessing to God's people. Uh, so we see verses 11, and f- 11 through to 14 there. Um, Haggai is making the points there that uncleanness is more contagious than holiness. Uh, so something that touches something holy doesn't become holy, but something that touches something unclean does become unclean. And the point he's making here is that um, the disobedience of the people means that their offerings that they bring before God are defiled because their hearts are not inclined to God's pleasure and honor. That's, that's the issue here. So he says there in uh, verses 16 and 17, consider what things were like before the rebuilding. Uh, You've got all these curses there. You've got um, a lack of productivity. Um, You're not getting as much produce as you thought you would. There's mildew, there's hail. Um, And yet they did not return to him, we see in verse 17. It's not just the, the offering of sacrifices to God that's needed. It's the actual heart issue that goes behind that as well. And then we see in verse 19 there, from on in verse 19, from this day on, I will bless you. So there's been a real turning point here from the time when Israel made the decision to, to rebuild the temple. There's, they've gone from God's curses uh, to God's blessings. Uh, so blessing being promised not only to Israel, but also to its king. Uh, we see at the end, those last few verses about Zerubbabel, the king, um, so God talks about a day when he's going to shake the heavens and the earth. He's going to overthrow uh, kings and rulers. And a day when Zerubbabel, the king, is going to become like his signet ring. Now that signet ring language is probably a bit, a bit lost on us today. It's probably not things we quite talk about. But the significance of a signet ring was it was something that a king kept really close to him. And it was something that he used to seal documents uh, to show that they were things uh, that were that were written by him. And so there's both um, a personal sort of side to it, but also a really important side to it, a really honourable task to it. I was trying to think of sort of modern day examples, probably a mobile phone's the closest thing I can think of because we like to keep them really close to us and they've generally got personal details on it, that sort of thing. It's probably a bit lost on us though, but something really important and precious. Now, we don't really know a lot more about Zerubbabel. He didn't seem to do anything particularly uh, impressive for the rest of his life that's been recorded in history. Um, but there would be a descendant of Zerubbabel years later, a descendant who will indeed be truly exalted on that day when all other kings and rulers are overthrown. And we can see this clearly as we look back, knowing that 
Jesus, who was descended from Zerubbabel, um, came as the great king and the great servant of his people. Uh, Jesus, through his death, made the perfect undefiled offering that the people of Israel back then weren't able to make to God and that we today aren't able to make to God either. Uh, You see, the people's offerings didn't become perfect because their hearts were still imperfect. It was God's mercy in accepting those offerings and giving them blessing. And it's the same with us. Anything that we do for God is defiled because it's stained with a a desire for our own pleasure and our own honor rather than God's. And that's really, that's the heart of sin. It's seeking our own pleasure and our own honor rather than God's. We can't satisfy God by our own strength and our own goodness. Not even the best person who's ever lived is able to do that. It's a, it's a hard truth, but it's an important one. Um, if you're here today checking out church or Christianity and trying to, trying to get an idea of what it's all about, this is really crucial to understand uh, that we don't work our way up to pleasing God, but we really fall on his mercy. That's, that's what we need. Now, the blessings that God promises to us aren't good rainfall and freedom from our enemies and, and all those sorts of material blessings and curses, because those are things that are part of the old covenant, so the covenant that that God had with the people of Israel. Jesus has brought in a new covenant that we're part of. And so the blessings that that God promises us now are the forgiveness of sins, the hope of an eternal life with God forever, where we don't have any of the the pain, the suffering, the sin, the, the futility that we have in this life. These are are wonderful blessings. They're greater, really, than any material blessings that we could ever be promised. It's wonderful news. So how how do we get these blessings? Well, we get them by accepting Jesus' perfect sacrifice on our behalf, by casting ourselves, falling on his mercy and, and accepting that he has done what we couldn't. He's made the perfect sacrifice to God that we never could. Now, perhaps that's a decision you've made long ago. You've cast yourself on God's mercy and, and each day you're living uh, with him as your king. Maybe that's not where you're at yet. Maybe, maybe that's just not quite a point you've reached. You're still, still working it out. Um, but that's, that's the ultimate point when, we, when we've recognized that we fall short on our own and uh, that we trust uh, that Jesus' death is the only thing that can make us right with God. That's, that's the vital step that we take from death to life. So if, that, if that's something that you're, you're not sure about, I'd love to, to have a chat afterwards. I'm sure Karen would love to, to have a chat or if you're here next week, Cameron would love to have a chat about that, I'm sure. Um, please don't leave without, without asking someone about that and without being able to, to chat that through. God is present with his people. That's, that's a wonderful promise to have. He's present with us. He gives us amazing blessings, uh, both that we can enjoy now, but also that we can look forward to. And he calls us to seek his glory and honor, uh, which, is, which is an encouraging message to have during um, what is, I'm sure, quite a, a busy and tiring season of church life with all the changes that have gone on recently. God hasn't left this church to go on the Woodcroft Church plant. I mean, he's, he's there on the Woodcroft Church plant as well. I'm not trying to say anything there, but he hasn't, he hasn't left here. He's still very much here and his promises are still real. 
And he wants to see this church uh, growing for his glory, to be living for his pleasure and glory and honor in this part of the world. And he's the only one that can make that happen. It's only through God uh, that this church can bring honor and glory to him. But he invites all of us to be a part of it as well. He wants everyone in this church to be a part of uh, seeking his pleasure and honor, not just in our individual lives, but in our, in our life as a church as well. Uh, so that plane ride that I was talking about where I was going into my shell a little bit, we were on the way to a conference called Reach Australia Conference, uh, which was a, a conference that was being run in Central Coast, New South Wales. And, and the whole message of the conference is really that we need to reach Australia with the gospel message. The, the population of Australia is growing and growing and growing, and yet more churches are, are closing down than, than are starting. So I think they said that 10 years ago, there was one church for every 1,500 people in Australia. It's now one church for every 2,300 people in Australia. So the, the gap is really growing between the people in this country and um, the church and the number of people who, are, who have put their trust in Jesus and and who are coming along to church. So it was a really challenging message to hear. There's, there's never been more for us to do as God's church, but we know that he's with us as we go about doing it. So even as you grieve the changes that have happened here, even as you react to the, the changes that have, that have happened, the people that have left, the, maybe the extra workload uh, that's needed to be picked up, um, please keep doing the work that God has given you all to do, to grow this church, to be God's presence in the, the Brighton, the Hove, the, the Holdfast Bay area, to be shining his light to this community, to be meeting together regularly, to be sitting under God's word, coming along to church on a Sunday, to um, growth group during the week, coming along to Christmas in July, which sounds like a, a great fun event, um, praying together, getting deep into God's word together, encouraging and, and building each other up. There is great work uh, that God has got uh, for each of you here in this church. There's, there's great work that he's doing, great work that he's got planned. And it's really a privilege to be able to, to be together and to be able to share in that uh, together. Uh, because the God who did amazing things for Israel in not only bringing them out of exile, but providing a way for the temple to be rebuilt and bringing his glory back to that temple, sending his son to be his presence with his people and to die for us, sending his spirit among us uh, to be his presence among us. That same God is the same God we worship today. It's the same God. And he still calls us to trust him, to trust his presence, uh, to rejoice in his blessings and to work for his pleasure and glory. So let me pray for that. Father in heaven, we give you great thanks that you're a God who's with us. Uh, that you, you are faithful to us, that you promise us amazing blessings and uh, that you also give us the dignity of working for your pleasure and your honour and your glory. We pray that you'd be helping us all to do that, both as individuals and as a church as well, that you'd be helping us in the, the easy and the difficult seasons of life to be seeking you and to be seeking how you might be honoured and glorified. <laughs> And we pray that even when it's difficult, difficult in our personal lives or difficult in our church life, uh, that you would be helping us to trust you and 
to know that you're with us, to know that your blessings are amazing and to know that your glory is so important, not just for us, but for everyone who needs to hear about your good news. Uh, So please be showing your presence with us, uh, be blessing our church gatherings and uh, be building us up to to live for your pleasure and your honour and glory and to keep hold of your promises in all times. In Jesus' name, amen.